Organissima New York. Your exotic skin, hair, and beauty source, and your one-stop shop for all your natural and organic skin and hair care. Featuring authentic organic Moroccan oil and prickly pear seed oil and much more. Bringing you only the best, straight from the source and proudly produced in the USA. So what are you waiting for? Shop today. Arganissima, New York. Your beauty is our duty. Folks, welcome back to the iHealth Channel, iHealth Radio, DNBC TV Network, uh, with your host, Hurricane H. Uh, new day, new show. Uh, a very interesting topic. We're going to talk uh, you know, with uh, someone uh, who is an author, and uh, he has a different spin on things. And uh, you know, again, I'm going to be suspenseful right now. Because uh, this is going to be an interesting uh, discussion, <laughs> a little, a little. It's going to have some fun to it, and I, I guess some some uh, curiosity is going to be, you know, probably a, a good piece of of the discussion. Uh, I have with me former NYPD, uh, you know, uh, personality. I would say, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> um, I have with me Vic Ferrari, and 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 he is formerly, uh, you know, an NYPD uh, police officer, and uh, you know, we'll talk about his ranking and and his his, uh, I guess, you know, uh, path in in the force, uh, and and. Before we even get started, I mean, uh, salute and greetings into all the law enforcement and uh, all the, the, the men and women in uniform that go out there and and make sure that we are safe. But but so there is there is that's the positive part. That's the great part. But there's some other stuff we're going to talk about today. So, Vic, welcome to the show, my man. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Uh, it's it's my pleasure, and uh, we connected. And I love uh, you're an author. You've written books um, about stories about behind the scenes stuff in the in, in, in on the force. I mean, uh, it's you know we know NYPD. I, I know NYPD well enough. I mean, I I lived in New York City. I right. I work in the city, so I am constantly. I even worked with NYPD. Literally, we did a lot of uh, with community affairs events and things like that in the communities. Uh, and, um, you know, so that's one, that's what I know about them. And I know they, they, they do a great job to, to serve, you know, and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, we also watch the movies and, and they're pretty exciting. It's one of the largest, I think, law enforcement, you know, uh, units, right. Or, uh, I guess. Yeah. The New York City police, yeah. The New York city police department at any given time has between 30 and 40,000 members. It's, it's probably, it's the largest police department by far in the country and probably in the world. Oh, it's powerful. Uh, it's huge. I mean, uh, well, again, I, you know, it's funny. Like, if you look at the 80s and then you look at the 90s and then the Giuliani time, I mean, that's where they they, they tripled up the, the amount of police officers, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, well, what, what happened in New York in the 70s, you got to remember, right, in the, in, the, in the late 60s, early 70s, we had Vietnam going. So a lot of young men and women, men, was sent off to Nam, and then New York City hit dire straits as far as financially. So there was a hiring freeze in the seventies. A lot of guys were laid off, like they they weren't hiring, and people were laid off. So, and I don't know what the numbers were, but you're right. The department really shrunk, and then probably about I got hired in eighty seven. So probably in the early eighties, they started hiring in massive classes, and the NYPD hires in bulk. So a small police academy class would be like 250 recruits graduating to become cops. Um, a larger group would be 
like 2,500 or maybe more. So if you think about that, like 2,500 people going into law enforcement in one shot. I mean, when I, when I was it, during my time, it was six months of training. And then from there, you would get farmed out after your six months, you would go to a borough and each borough had zones and each zone had three or four precincts that had a field training unit. So it wasn't like you went to a precinct and you were there. No, you went to a zone and you were exposed to three or four different precincts, which is three or four different neighborhoods and communities. So you'd see different things, right? It wasn't like you were just trapped in one place. They wanted you to get a taste of the city and they would sprinkle us out on foot posts and it was baptism by fire because you basically had to figure things out after the academy. And we had field training sergeants that, you know, if you got into trouble or you didn't know what you were doing, you'd get on the radio and ask for your field training sergeant. He'd show up and guide you. And then a couple of times a month, you would go from on foot. You'd get in a, a police car with the field training sergeant and another rookie. And you would pick up the worst calls because they want you to learn before you go to a precinct. They don't want you to be clu clueless. So you're going to DOAs. People don't realize that. New York City's got 9 million people. People are going to die sometimes natural, sometimes unnatural. So it, it ranges from, I remember like my first DOA was a homicide. And then other times it's some poor elderly person that passes in their sleep. The police show up, we do a pre preliminary investigation and we call it sitting on a DOA because you're with a dead person in their apartment or house for hours until the medical examiner shows up and says, yeah, this isn't a suspicious death. This is an elderly woman. She had heart problems. We called the doctor. We saw her heart medication. The family can call the funeral home to prepare, right, the next step. Or if it's a suspicious death, a young person or something, time out. We're going to have the body removed to the morgue where they're going to do an autopsy to see if it was, you know, a homicide. So you were going on these real crazy calls early on, and it was overwhelming because it's like, you know, I was stocking shelves in a supermarket a couple of months earlier, right? Now I'm walking around with a gun and shield, and, I, and I'm I'm sitting in an apartment with some dead guy for hours on a midnight, right? When it, it was like something out of a horror movie. I'm like, what, the, what did I get? My, like, you don't think about that, right? You think it's going to be chasing bank robbers and pulling cars over. and Yeah, there's some of that. But the reality is most police work is service-orientated. Well, well, thanks, Vic. I mean, it, it's pretty inter interesting the, the 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 initiating. I mean, story right now. I mean, because that's really your initial days. Now, now, before we get into the detail, the details. Um, what got you into the the NYPD? I mean, was it some something that you always wanted? I mean, you know, when we're kids, cops and robbers, and was that was that the same concept? That's here? exactly it. No, you hit the nail on the head. I grew up in the Bronx, lower middle class family. I lived in a row house off the Cross Bronx Expressway, and I, from I mean, from five years old, playing cops and robbers, and you got to remember, right, in the 70s, you had all these police shows about the NYPD and movies, The French Connection, The 7-Ups, Barney Miller, I mean, all that crap. So that's I saw that, and I was like, wow, that's something I really want to do. And then I always tell the story, but it's true. By the age of 10, 12 years old, my friends and I would sneak into the post office and steal FBI wanted posters off the wall, and then we'd go around the neighborhood conducting manhunts. So, you know, we go into a deli with a wanted poster, some guy wanted for a bank robbery in Arkansas, and we're looking at some poor con ed guy like that could be him. You know, so I knew what I wanted to do by the age of five, 10 years old, and I kept my nose clean. And 
I, I studied for the exam at 20. By 21, I went into the police academy. But yeah, it, I, I knew what I wanted from a very early age. Uh, so th this is a true story. I actually applied for NYPD. I got I got a number to go to the exam. I never did. <laughs> I, Wait, you, so you took the exam, you passed, obviously, and then they- No, they no, no. I never- I never made it to the exam. They just said, like, you know how you get oh. your your your, uh, your registration number and you your pre, uh, I guess, testing and all the stuff and uh, like that prep you for the exam. So I what got year to was this? Uh, it was 2006, I think. Yeah, yeah, that was that. You know, I did it. You know, and but never went to the test. Literally, I I had I was scheduled and everything, never made it. <laughs> Um, Dude, that would have been, let's see, 2000, say you got tired in 2007. I mean, a couple of years, you'd be getting a pension. <laughs> I, well, I know. Well, listen, <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because at that time I applied through through, through a couple of uh, law enforcement agencies and uh, customs one being uh, another one. Good job. Um, and um, but but whatever happened is because uh, I was in between career path, like, you know, I, I was uh, literally um I guess in sabbatical from my health insurance world. And so I wanted, and I've always been, had a, some sort of a penchant, as they say, for, for law enforcement, some sort of a fascination, I would say, same, same concept here. And uh, yeah, so that was always me. And even in, in my career, I still do law enforcement in a way because we have policies and compliance and stuff. Oh, and sure. We do investigation, all stuff. So I kind of tend to do that. So that was like, you know, maybe I'll, sure. I'll go there. Uh, and, and, and the reason I didn't go on it firstly, you know, and as a, a younger person is just, I'm an only child. My parents were not for the idea of me going anywhere with this action. <laughs> so, so, but it's funny because I, I literally had, had everything. I mean, I might even still have an email with all the details somewhere. <laughs> no, see, I was way before email. The only way you could become a cop in New York back in the day, right? There wasn't like a website. When are they hiring? I don't know if it still exists, but there was a newspaper called the chief. And the chief would list all civil service exams and union jobs. And I think it came out weekly or monthly. And you get a hold of it. You go to the newsstand, right? Newsstands, do they even exist? You go to a newsstand, you get a copy of the chief, and you'd like, the NYPD is hiring. And it would have the filing date. And then when that filing date, you had to get an application and send it a money order or a check. And then wait. I mean, it wasn't like nowadays you can do, do stuff online. Yeah, listen, I mean, well, yeah, but it, it was a different world. I mean, oh, let, yeah. let's put it, yeah. It was just completely different. Everything changed, I mean, over the years, and technology has made it a lot more easier. And again, in my case, it was literally just apply online, you know, and then you go through the routine, they send you the number, here's your test date, here's some, you know, like they give you the little preview on how the test is, and, you know, you get to practice some of the, you know, the, they give you the picture, you had a few seconds to look at and all that. So I did all that stuff, and I was ready. And then, like I said, last minute, I never made it to the test, and uh, that was it. <laughs> Change you of believe. I'll tell you what. Like I remember when I got hired, right? Even before we started the police academy, they have a couple of days before you actually go into the academy where they'll bring you to some high school or college, depending on the size of the group of cops. Like I think my class was twelve hundred, so we were in this large auditorium. I think we were in Fashion Institute of Technology. And there's, I think we started out with like maybe 1,400. But I mean, even before we went into the academy, we were filling out countless forms and orientation. And people were just dropping out like, you know what, this isn't for me. Um, you know, and like every day they would, they would tell us like, yeah, three more dropped out. 
they got, you know, another job opportunity or they said, you know what, I can't do this. Or like what you said, my family is weighing heavily on me. They really don't want me to do this. So there was a lot of people that even before we got in the gate had just, you know, went a different way. And then you have also, obviously, you, you go to the academy. Sometimes some people wash out, like you know, police academy movie style. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's a washout and and field training. I, so in my time, it was two year probationary period, right? So they could fire you for anything, and the union wasn't going to stick up for you. Like basically, they could fire you without cause, right? So you had some people fail the drug exam because they were constantly testing us, right? I think we got tested three times during the probationary period. So that knocked out a small percentage. But the thing was, so to become a cop, you have to have a thorough background check. And that background check, even though you're in the academy, it hasn't stopped. That closes after your two years. So if anything comes up that a doesn't look right, or you didn't divulge, or they unearth about your past, you're gone. And I remember in field training, there were two girls so in my field training, there was like 40 or 50 of us. And there were two female cops. One, they fit somehow they figured out either someone dropped a dime on her or came out to her insurance. She had spent time in drug rehab. She was gone. And then there was another female cop whose husband was a cop who was doing home invasions. And she was the lookout for her husband's home invasion team. And I remember one time. You had a couple of female sergeants from internal affairs and, and and like it was a big thing like they came into the precinct went right into the locker room stopped her before she got to her locker took her guns from her opened the locker like they had a search warrant it, it was it was wild like it's like i didn't sign up for this like what is this crap but yeah it happens well i mean listen you know we hear this term today police the police kind of concept but but that's always existed. I mean, internal affairs is is a big component, you know. And I know they're not the best fan. The cops are not the fan of those those that department specifically. Well, it's changed. It's, it's changed. changed a lot. The NY, I'll say, you know, like the NYPD does a lot of things wrong. From and we can get into it about the summons quotas and 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 the statistics how they're addicted to it. But I will say this: so when you hire that many people in bulk, right? No matter. How thoroughly you screen, there's always going to be a couple of bad apples that get through. It's inevitable. They either have a very high IQ and they know what to say to get around the psychologicals, or they haven't done anything yet. And they take the job and they just wait on the sidelines, waiting for an opportunity to do something or waiting for that opportunity where they find someone who's like-minded to help them pull off whatever they're going to do. It's like if you and I were working together and we, we're pulling over cars and I'm seeing you stealing money, I'm going to be like, dude, what are you doing? I'm calling the supervisor like this is this is going to stop because I'm not. But if you've got a guy that's like, yeah, I don't care. As a matter of fact, I'll, you split. <laughs> you, well, you pull over this drug dealer and then I'll pull over the next one. Yeah, You know what I mean? So there are people like that. Others, they either get bitter or their lifestyle changes, or God knows what, they just go the wrong way. I mean, there's a chapter in one of my books called Crossing Over the Dark Side. And I, I, I cover in detail how the department looks at corruption. They're actually paranoid about it, but I mean, in a good way. And when I first got hired, right, internal affairs was career guys. They were kind of clueless and didn't know what they were doing and would jump the gun on a lot of things and jam people up that didn't do something. And during the Giuliani administration, they figured out, you know what? We want cops to be able to reach out to internal affairs when they have a problem. We want competent people that know how to run complex investigations, right? 
So what they started doing was, so say I'm a detective and I work in narcotics or I'm a detective in the auto crime division or vice, right? And I get promoted to sergeant. Well, when you get promoted, you get pulled out of your specialized unit. You get your sergeant shield. You go to a sergeant school, believe it or not, BMOC. And then from there, you go back to uniform. So you don't go directly back to, to narcotics. You're now in a precinct somewhere, right? And you've got to work in a precinct. I forget what it was a year or two. If you want to go back to organized crime or a specialized unit, right? You've got to interview all over again. Well, they set it up like the NFL draft. So when you go for your organized crime control interview, you're going to have vice, narcotics, all these specialized units and internal affairs sits in on your interview. And internal affairs always gets the first round draft pick. So say they're interviewing 10, 15 people, you know, to be, and they're looking to pick up three or four sergeants for these units. After the interviews, internal, like I would be picked if I got promoted to sergeant because of my background, I was in auto crime. I know everything about VIN numbers, insurance fraud cases. I can guarantee you if I went for a sergeant's exam, they'd say, oh, we could use this guy because do cops commit insurance fraud? Sure, sometimes. But we would need a guy that would know how to run that case and know what to look at with the paperwork or a guy from narcotics. So they started bringing in talent. And the way they set it up is when they would draft you to go to internal affairs, you had to work there a year or two. And then after you did your time in, in internal affairs, you would get your choice of specialized units. So it's almost like, OK, we pulled you out. But what that did was it used to be when you went to if you volunteered to work internal affairs early on in my career, you were labeled a rat like mm -hmm. you go to cop bars. You were shunned. It was almost like the Amish. No one would talk to you. But when when they started doing that, people started realizing, OK, there's a reason for this and they're looking to make it better. And there's quality people going in there that's not going to railroad people. Let's give them a chance. And it, it opened things up. It actually did a lot of good for the department. So thank you for clarifying that, because, again, I mean, the perception is that there is that big distinction. You know, you got cops and you got the internal affairs and they basically don't get along. And at least at least for me, a natural perspective of of, of the, the just the common folk. I mean, we watch that stuff on movies. That's that's the I guess that's where right. we get our, our information, which is not sure. necessarily always. There's some truth to it, but you're right. They, there's dramatic stuff there. But but I love what you you, you kind of gave us a little bit of a, uh, a historic behind, you know. Yeah, a was. lot of people don't know that. And then, like, as a detective in the auto crime division, right, we were going up on wiretaps sometimes, right, or, or working on cases that involved organized crime figures. So sometimes a cop would wander onto the playing field in the middle of our investigation. And it was like, this guy, you know, we're listening to a phone conversation. We're following somebody and we quickly figure out there's, there's a cop involved in this. So it's like time out, you know, and our supervisors would contact an internal affairs. They would come down and then we'd work with a liaison. Um, I worked on a case. We had car thieves shipping cars out of the country. In addition to shipping cars out of the country, our thieves were in the murder for hire business, right? So we're, we're working on an international car shipping ring and we're trying to solve homicides. There's two cops from a Bronx precinct, and we, we quickly figure out they're hanging out with these guys, right? They're riding their motorcycles with these guys. They're palling around with them. And what these cops were doing is the thieves would call them up and say, hey, um, 
you know, they, they always made it sound innocent, but it wasn't like, hey, I just got into a fender bender and the guy took off. Let me give you the, this license plate. Could you just because I want to contact my insurance company and the cops would run the plate for them. And then these thieves would know. So if they saw a car they wanted to steal, they give them the plate, they give them the address, and then they'd go to some poor guy's house and steal the car out of their driveway. And what the cops were getting is they were big motorcycle enthusiasts. So if they blew the engine on their bike or they needed fairings for the bike, their car thief friends would provide them stuff for their motorcycle. So this this was going on for a while, and we took that case down. Those two cops lost their jobs. I mean, th the last case I was working on, we had an informant in a scrap metal processor in the Bronx. And um, people would occasionally drop off stolen vehicles to have crushed, be it an insurance job. Like, I don't want my car anymore. I don't want to pay for the insurance. You know, let the insurance pay for it. Let me bring the car to this guy I know in the scrap metal processor. They'll cube it. I'll report it stolen. The car is gone, right? But what we realized is we had these thieves start to bring us cars for the weight. So they were stealing older lead sleds, right? Like a 3,000 pound car. They'd get a couple hundred bucks, a thousand bucks for the weight and the metal. Then we realized we had some cop from Queens. He was involved. He was delivering a stolen car. So, I mean, when we took that case down, he wound up going to jail. Because in addition to bringing a stolen cars and, and through surveillance, we realized he had a friend that was a realtor out in the Hamptons, somewhere out Long Island, like very wealthy neighborhood. And his friend would tell him when people like that, his friend would be showing a house, like would be the realtor on record. If he knew that these people were down in Florida vacationing, he would tell his buddy and they would do these high end burglaries out Long Island. So in addition to he, the guy wound up going to jail, he did time, he lost his job. So, yeah, it's like we don't squash anything in the NYPD. I mean, in my time. I, I watched a lot of guys either go to jail or get fired or even commit suicide when they knew the jig was up. No, I, I'm listening to you, Vic. It's it's amazing. I mean, m I think most of the cops, if not all, they have that same initiate, initiating concept of cops and robbers and they want to go do and serve and protect, right? But like you said, I mean, unfortunately, human nature does tap in for whatever reason. Now, now, now certainly some people get, they get, get corrupted. And uh, they use their their rank, and and so that that brings me to the concept of some people have this perception that folks sometimes go to a, a law enforcement because of a badge and a gun and power. Is that some even do. okay? So that is that is a reality. Some do, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's the it's the exception to the rule, in my opinion. Like, so every precinct, let's let, let's break it down to like just a precinct, not specialized unit. Let's go to a precinct because that's where you're going to find the most cops, right? There's 77 precincts spread across the five boroughs with, with police stations. And every precinct has between 100 to maybe in Midtown, three, 400 cops, right? In my opinion, the ones that you're just talking about that became cops for the power, those are usually the summons guys. <laughs> the summons guys and every precinct has, well, let's back up. Every cop in NYPD has to write summonses. The department will say no. It's true. I mean, in my time, you could arrest 10 bank robbers, capture Osama bin Laden, and, and, and deliver three babies in a month. If you didn't write your 25 parking tickets, you didn't write your 10 moving violations, three of which had to be red light summonses because those were the big ticket items, right? You were going to get a talking to. like, And it's not your sergeant's fault. He's getting crap from the lieutenant, who's getting crap from the commanding officer, who's getting crap from the borough, who's getting crap from... It, it's, it, it's the city that basically puts this pressure on, right? So you'll get to talk to like, hey, Vic, 
you only wrote 15 parking tickets this month. All right, Sod. I mean, the, the trick is to just act stupid and say, oh, I, you know, I didn't even really, you don't want to go head on with this, right? And if you keep doing it, you're going to get a subpar evaluation. Now, in addition to that, every NYPD precinct to command has summons cops, right? They're usually the guy or girl nobody wants to work with. And they're the ones that took the job because they didn't either date in high school or they got bullied or they're just antisocial people. And they want to drive around in a circle for eight hours a day and paper the streets with summonses. And for them, the power is in the pen, right? So if I pulled you over during my time, if I pulled you over, right, if you've got all your paperwork and you're a nice guy, I'm not giving you a ticket because we got enough enemies out there. It's like if you tell me, listen, I'm going to work or shit, I didn't even realize I did a Bronx roll through the stop sign. It's like, all right, dude, just do me a favor. Don't pay more attention. Thank you. Because you'll get further because you know what? You're going to go, geez, I got pulled over by the cop. He was so nice. He didn't give me a ticket. That That's community relations as opposed to me pulling you over. You know why I stopped you? Yeah. Give me. Well, back to the car. Here. The information's on the back. You're going to go, what an asshole. You, you know what I mean? Because even if you know you do something wrong, a summons is a pain in the ass. It is. It's like a slap. And I used to say there's more than enough people out there with temporary plates, suspended licenses, lapsed insurance that we can give two or three summons to that deserve it as opposed to someone going to work that made a mistake. The summons guys, <laughs> they don't care. I mean, they just don't. And like they used to get messed with in the precinct, like the ones that were really heavy handed, like you get a phone call. So you get a phone call. Let's just say the summons guy's name was Smith, right? And you get a phone call to so say, one of my friends worked in another precinct. Go, hey, Ferrari, who's this guy Smith? And I'm like, oh, God, what did he do now? He's like, <laughs> pulled my brother-in-law over and he gave him a ticket. I'm like, well, this isn't the guy you can talk to. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I, says, I, I wouldn't even approach this guy. You're going to get in trouble. So just let it go and then like guys like if if they kept doing crap like that i saw a couple of times like you'd go into the locker room and you'd see somebody's locker upside down in the shower with the water running on it and you're like whose locker is that you'd hear and, and no one would say you'd never know who did it and you'd hear smith and that was it like no one would say another word because you know this guy is going to open up a can of worms with it so the less people that know about it the better so you, that like you go in and you see something crazy like that and you're like, you know, like Smith and you go, oh, and then you're like, you wouldn't even ask a follow up question, right? Because you just because this guy is going to go crazy and call internal affairs. So like the less people that ask questions or know about something, it's, you know. Vic, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I'm listening to you. But, but you're referring to, well, there's a few things there that you covered right now. I mean, one is the summons is the biggest. It's one of oh, the yeah. biggest deals because everybody is i mean obviously listen there are rules uh, there are things that you have to follow uh, listen i've seen cops make mistakes on the road personally i mean i've seen them all the time <laughs> yeah you know with the cell phones i mean you know and you can't what are you gonna tell them? hey officer you know you uh, can i get you a summon you know i mean so, so yeah. it's like you can right and so it's funny but but you're right that we're humans right we make mistakes it doesn't matter what you know whether you have a, a uniform or not you know that's happening and i love what you said about it's how you look at it now if someone does something really bad it's the job to right. stop and you know they have to learn listen I'm, I'm totally with you but i love that the concept of like you know there's enough bad you know uh doing that we don't have to do with the the one that just like literally running because I, my kids are you know waiting out of school or 
or something, and you just because everybody does it. Exactly, it. everybody does it. No, but I appreciate it. Now, now you were referring also like in terms of like uh, PBA cards or like family, you know, courtesy. Oh, yeah. You know, hey, listen, you know, I know so and so is in the family. You give them a number. Normally, they call and they give you a little, hey, okay, we'll dismiss this one. We don't show up to court. That kind of thing. Uh, I mean, that's a kind of like common. Group. But but you have people. I've I've seen cops that would not even indulge with that thing. That's As the not, summons, guys. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. There's this true story. Uh, my, we were three of us in the vehicle, literally in Midtown, and just a couple of blocks from the office. And um, so at the light, and so the guy that was driving, he looked at his phone. This is like, you know, maybe like 10 years ago. So he looked at the phone, and the cops are there, you know, and he, he knew the cops were there, but so he didn't think that it was anything because he, he wasn't was, texting. Yeah, he, he was not texting. He was right. not. He just looked at it. So the cop comes to him like you were on the phone. He's like, officer, I am literally you know, at the light. I'm looking at my phone uh, just to check something. He's like, no, you're not supposed to pull over. And so so he had a commissioner, literally community affairs commissioner's badge, you know, because because as I told you, we worked with, you know, NYPD. So he showed him. He was like, I don't give a shit who you know. <laughs> literally, he did say that, you know, and, and yeah, I believe it. He wrote him the summons. And then eventually we we did call you know the commissioner's office and, you know, that kind of got dismissed. But 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 you're right. There are people that that will not budge. They don't. Maybe he got offended because he threw in the commissioner's name to him, whatever. Uh, and again, I mean, I get it. You know, you, you almost undermined his authority at that point. You could have been nicer. He so might have was- been. For, he might have been from Manhattan traffic. So in Midtown, you have what's called Manhattan traffic, and that, that's a whole unit of summons people. Like that's all they do. Like they come. You you've got like I don't know two three hundred people there that they're either you're writing parking tickets. You're right. Moving violations. You're right. ECB violations. So that's all they do. That kind of sounds like uh, what that's you ran probably. into. Yeah. Listen, I mean, again, but for for the common, you know, uh, New Yorker, I mean, it's like, I don't know who's what. I mean, you can't even tell. You know, that's the other thing. Like sometimes you get pulled over. I've seen people being pulled over by cops that may not be from the same zone or, or precinct. I, is that even a thing? Because because the understanding is that yeah. not not cops have different jurisdictions. They cannot actually pull you over oh, no, they, can. they can so, uh, so let's as long as it, listen as long as you're an nypd cop i mean say say you're a brooklyn cop and you go out to a detail out in queens say, say for argument's sake say you're a queens cop and you go out to coney island they send you out to coney island for the day for, for um the hot dog eating contest on the fourth of july or or uh whatever and Surf, you know somebody blows past a a school bus you know, you know what I mean. While they're letting kids out, and you were, yeah, you could, you could write somebody a summons. Okay, so well, yeah, but that's because you were assigned there. But like, let's say you're just driving to 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 enjoy, like you finish your shift, you're going to eat. Oh no! If you're off duty and you're writing tickets, you're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Listen, but- any NYPD cop will tell you that if if you're if if you're that into it and you're pulling people over off duty, you're an EDP, an emotionally disturbed person. Like that's. And, they, and even the department, as summons crazed as they are, wouldn't appreciate that. So, so Vic, you, you, the summons is obviously the biggest part of the discussion. I mean, there's more stuff that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. But, but the summons is like where people are always like hanging, right? That's like where everybody is afraid. I mean, I think uh, nine mil- wants one. I don't blame them. <laughs> nine million people are always driving careful. Listen, I, I can tell you this. I've, I only had one summons, you know, for like uh, speed in, in my life. And it was on Staten Island by a by a, a highway <laughs> cop. Top, yeah, and, and it was you know one of those transitions where it goes from like sixty five to fifty five, and I was. And that's on, why he was sitting there. 
Yeah, it was like it's feet trap basically, and I'm like, and I'm pulling. It was like slow mo. He looking at me. I'm looking at him. I pull over. I go to the judge. The judge says, "Okay, well, you don't have any previous violations. I'm gonna give you a courtesy." It's, I was like, I paid like a small fee, whatever, and that was it. No points at the time. So it was. Perfect. So it was. It was a cool thing. But but you know, again, a lesson learned. You know, and I, I actually that spot every time I go to it today. That cup, there's always one there. <laughs> well, and then then when you got to go to traffic court, that's a pain in the ass because oh, yeah. they're usually not in the greatest of neighborhoods. There's absolutely no parking because everybody and their mother is going there to fight these summonses and they drive. Then you've got all the police vehicles. So you're parking 15 blocks away. There's no real place to hang around. There's always a couple of ambulance chasers. It's funny, like in the Bronx, there was this ambulance chaser attorney. He looked like Che Guerra. Right. He had the beard. He wore like a rumpled suit. Right? What the hell was his name? He had like a Jewish first name and a Spanish last name. It was like Harvey. Oh, God, he was funny, like Harvey Perez or something. Right. But he was a character like he was entertaining. You would go to. So you would go to traffic court. Right. And Harvey would be in the stairwell with all the livery cab drivers. And he'd be talking to Spanish, working out deals. And I think it went like this. If Harvey got you acquitted of your ticket, you gave him $100. If he couldn't beat your case, you walked. But he was always fighting with the gypsy cab drivers in the hallway. And this guy was like, he was like an actor, like a showman. He'd pound his hand. Like, you would think someone was fighting for their life. Like, it was a <laughs> homicide trial with Harvey, right? Like, I used to love when he would have, like, because he'd wink at you. He'd go, he'd give you a wink, and then he'd go on to this thing. Officer, can I see your memo book? And, like... It was nothing personal. He was putting on a show for his client, right? The thing was, Harvey was such a pain in the ass because what he would do was clog up the system because these they just want you to pay your fine. They don't really like it when you fight these things. Well, they figured out that Harvey really wasn't an attorney because he was representing himself. He wasn't. It wasn't he was like an attorney. No, they kicked him out. They banned him from Bronx Traffic Court. But it was like, what a loss. Like, he was just, I just used to it. When I would see him, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to sit in his courtroom because he just would put on such a, a, a good show. Well, you, you know, it's amazing. But, but, but at least he, he was doing something right. Apparently, he's, he's been doing it for a minute. So he got away with it for quite some time. And I think, I think like the one of the judges there or somebody that worked at TVV traffic violations bureau looked into it. And once they saw he was an attorney, they, pulled, they banned him. Well, listen, I mean, he tried, I guess, right? Well, so, so years. Listen, <laughs> well, it was working what is working, right? You make it work. Uh, so, so Vic, I, I know uh, one thing I want to go back to, you talked about initial, you know, access to, to NYPD or law enforcement. You talked about mental, um, you know, uh, condition or mental, uh, uh, I guess, testing, right? They do uh, some yeah, sort of a, a, a sake right? Yeah, sake yeah. And, and so, but, but like, you said it. I mean, these these folks. I mean, uh, the psyche valve has got to be intense, and you know, people still go through and and do bad things. You know, I mean, it's it's amazing. Like you 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 have every single two years of of literally background. You know, uh, I guess investigation. You do the psyche valves oftentimes, and yet people still go. I guess on a tangent and do bad things. Is that related to let's say financial? Because for me, I mean. I know NYPD now pays well. I mean, there was a time maybe that wasn't the case. Is that even the reality? Well, they used to, they used, it's funny you should say that. So like in the seventies, right? When police corruption was out of control, this is before my time, 
but they made movies about it, Serpico, Prince of the City, right? Shit that was really bad where you had money going from the precinct cops that were getting paid off by gambling locations and sometimes drug dealers, and the money was flowing up to zones and borough commanders and stuff. So by the time I got there, that was all over. Um, But they... The, the one thing the NYPD gets right is from the time you get hired, they tell you you're going to be fired. I mean, make no mistake about it. They are beating that into your head the day you walk through the door at the police academy about police corruption. Internal affairs comes. Specialized units come to the police academy and, and, and show videos and teach seminars and give war stories. And they show videos of cops that got jammed up and did jail time. Talking about how they went bad, how they wound up going to jail, they lost everything. So, I mean, it's not like I'm not sure. I mean, you know what flies and what doesn't fly. I mean, th- they're very good at that, and th- and they never take their foot off the gas with that. As far as you know, if you 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 go you you turn sideways, you're out of here. You're going to jail. Um, is it financial? I don't think so. I mean, they used to say back in the day they weren't paying cops much. And I can't speak to that because I wasn't there. I mean, you're not going to be rich being a cop. But if you live, you know, if you live below your means, you're going to have a good life. Um, I think it boils down to more, um, you know, people that just get in under the wire. And you are right. The psychological, it was intense. So I remember like I it was a whole day. It was like eight or 10 hours where I took several psych long psychological exams. I mean, one, the Minnesota aptitude test, it's like 500 questions, but it's only it's 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 kind of the same questions worded differently over and over again where they're looking for a, a pattern. Then I had to draw. I'm not, I kid you not. In addition to taking all these tests, I had to draw a man, a house and a tree. Now, I can't draw draw to save my life. I'm like, they're going to think Charles Manson is trying to get in here because I just I can't draw. But after you do all that crap, like a couple of months later, they call you out to Left Rack Plaza, which is the NYPD's health service division where they do all your physicals, drug screening. Um, and they would call us in like 50 at a time. And we were sitting in this large room. Right. And there was a couple of offices with psychologists and the psychologists would call us in one by one and ask questions about things that, that that flagged or they wanted to talk to you about or interpret, right? So I said, I'm going to sit near one of those doors. So as soon as someone got up from one of those doors, I moved my seat because I wanted to listen what they were talking about. And I'll never forget this because I was one of the last guys to get called, which aided me immensely. And uh, I remember like a guy left and one psychologist called another one into her office and they were debating over the guy's drawing. And she goes, I don't think he, look how small his man is. I don't think he has very high self-esteem. And I'm like, I knew the guy I drew was like, fucking big. So <laughs> I said like, well, maybe I have too much self-esteem, but it was fine. I went in there and they asked me like, I, either they were tired from interviewing people all day or I didn't flag, but like I was in there like five minutes and I, I, I don't even remember really what they asked me, but I was in and that's 36 years ago, but they do do a lot of psychological screening. So thank you, um, Vic. So so your career, Pat, you started as just a regular cop, and then you yeah. went to a special unit, um, and you moved up to detective, you know, rank, and and so so that's a pretty you know uh, an intense in itself because you have to go to detective uh, exams and things like that, correct? No, 
No, so, oh, okay. so it works like this. So you get out of field training, right? And you go to a precinct. You're a grunt. You go to an NYPD precinct as a rookie cop, and the old timers won't talk to you. It's almost like your first day in jail. And there's people walking around and you don't know who's who or what's what. It's like it's like it's like you're a kid going to school for the first day in another neighborhood. You don't know anybody. You like you pray, you know, somebody you recognize from your neighborhood or your brother's friend or my first precinct, thank God, there was a guy I used to hang around with years earlier that was there. And he was like, oh, let me help you get a locker. Stay away from this guy. Or like, this one's an asshole, Be, you know, because I trusted him. Um, then after a while, the old timers will warm up to you. And if their partner isn't in for the day, they'll go, kid, you want to get in the car? I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. And then the old timers used to tell you, don't touch that fucking radio. And I'm driving. It's like, okay. But you just keep your, your ears open and your mouth shut. And after a while, after a couple of months, and they realize you're not a know-it-all, you're not a crybaby, you know, you're a good guy, you'll back them up, you're not a coward, then people will start inviting you out for a beer. Or, hey, we're going to Yankee game, you want to go on Friday? And then you become one of the guys or gals, right? And after a while, you're in a precinct, and you're getting good evaluations, and you want to, if you get good evaluations and you're not a pain in the ass, you start putting in for things after a couple of years. So I always wanted to go to plain clothes. I had a lot of arrests. I didn't have a lot of civilian complaints. I, you know, good evaluations. So they're like, he's not a risk. We're going to give him a little more leash. So now I'm in plain clothes. I'm in a, and you know, I'm making arrest in anti-crime, right? Then during the Giuliani administration, narcotics started picking up bodies like the narcotics division when i first got hired might each borough had like 30 detectives it was ridiculous giuliani wanted to beef that up so they started picking up waves of of cops to go into the narcotics division so i filled out an application i went for an interview screening they did more they did more of a thorough background check believe it or not for me to go into narcotics than they did for me coming into the job. And there's a funny story from one of my books. I go for my narcotics interview at Police Plaza. I'm sitting in a room in a suit and tie with all these supervisors from different narcotics units, right? And one of them goes, starts asking me about my father's past. And uh, I go, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, your father got arrested a couple of times. I go, my father? And he says his date of birth, which coincidentally is mine. And we're born on the same day. And I go, there is no way. He goes, I'll show you. And I'm like, dad got locked up in 1956 and like 1958. Like, what the? Right. So I'm like, oh, I said, this, we're going to have some interesting dinner conversation when we get home. Right. So that night I come home, we're sitting around the dinner table. My mother's putting food out. And I'm like, dad, I got to ask. And please don't take this the wrong way. I go, did you ever get arrested? And he goes, yeah, a couple of times as a teenager. Right. And then my mother starts freaking out. My mother's like, well, what are you so goddamn nosy? And she's like dropping plates and like trying to stop this conversation. And he got in trouble a couple of times as a kid, nothing major. But like, he goes, now you understand why I was so tough on you and your brother? I go, yeah, now it makes sense. But like, as a kid, I didn't see it. So anyway, I went into the narcotics division. I did it for about a year and a half. So to get become a detective, you've got to work in a specialized unit like narcotics, vice, Internal Affairs, RIP, which is Robbery Identification Program, any one of the investigative units in the NYPD. If you work there for, and this might have changed, but in my time, if you work there for 18 months, you got good evaluations, you would get promoted to detective. Now, detective is lateral. 
to cop, right? A detective can't order a cop around. A detective can't suspend a cop. It's just an investigative position alongside a cop. And once you're already a detective, it's easier to navigate through specialized units because you've already proven you're an investigator. You got casework. I absolutely, after a year and a half of narcotics, I couldn't take it anymore. It just, for me, it wasn't for me. I, I took an unusual role. I went back to patrol and everybody was like, what are you crazy? You could be a detective in four months. I go, they can keep it. I, I, I was over narcotics doing buy and bust every day long. You're locking up the same people, right? We're locking up 20, 30 junkies at a time. You're always afraid of getting stuck with a needle. You're always afraid of getting AIDS or hepatitis C. You're dealing with street people, right, that are selling because for the most part, guys that are pitching in the street are either young kids making money or junkies feeding a drug habit. So you're strip searching and mass processing 15 people a day. You've always got a cold. They're always coughing on you. They smell. I'm like, oh, I'm not doing this crap no more. I went back to patrols. And but I was always a car guy. I was always getting into car chases. I I, I knew everything about VIN numbers on cars. I always led the precinct in stolen car arrests. My old sergeant from narcotics a year or two later was in auto crime. And he said, you know, we're picking up investigators for auto crime. He goes, I know you can run a case. He goes, put in for it. And that's how I shot into the auto crime division. And that's where I was working on chop shops and organized crime and shipping cases with cars getting shipped out of the country. That's where I spent my last 10 years. Well, thank you, Vic. So so now I want to get into some some sure. meat stuff. You know, um, NYPD and diversity, that's 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 a, a topic of discussion that that almost shifted in decade after decade. You know, is that even a real thing? I mean, you know, because initially, if you think about NYPD, um, you know, in terms of ethnic background, it was limited. You know, am I getting that right? No. Um, and I'll give you a perfect example why it's not. When we were doing a shipping case, we were working on that international shipping case. We had cars getting shipped to China, right? Well, how are we going to monitor the bad guys? They're all speaking Mandarin, Cantonese, and there was another. There were three dialects of Chinese. These guys were speaking. <laughs> so what did we do? We the NYPD has a database. When you when you get hired, they want to know everything about you, what you did for a living. So I I used to be an exterminator. They might have a case where they need a guy to, uh, to go in as an undercover as an exterminator that can talk the talk. Or we had a couple of cases where we had guys working in the scrap metal processor place. We pulled people that in their background were scrap metal processors, right? But in this particular case, we needed like 10 people that spoke these dialects. We pulled 10 Chinese, 10, 10 Chinese cops out of their precincts. I mean, they wanted to go and they got it. And some of them became detectives. We pulled them out. They were monitoring the Chinese industry. I mean, like that. And we had it on, I mean, I, I think what I think they had like 50 candidates that spoke these diet, you know, when we were able to pull 10. So the NYPD was very diverse. It's even more diverse now. But, you know, there, there, there wasn't discrimination with hiring. As long as you passed the test and got through the background and the psychologicals and passed the drug screening, they weren't holding anybody back. It's who put in for it. No, I appreciate that. I mean, thank you for clarifying that because again, yes, there's there's this big, you know. I mean, if you look you know, New York, you know, you Irish, you're Italian, those were like you know the pre predominant, I would say, uh, force. And then, yes, then you had other, you, you're 100 percent right. When I first got hired, there was a lot of Irish. I, I'm both. I'm Irish and Italian, so yes. But I mean, I work with Spanish cops, black cops, Chinese cops. Um, 
I, I worked with a I worked with a white guy that was born in South Africa. He used to say it was funny. We were narcotics. He goes, I'm the only real African. <laughs> he was so funny. He was born in South Africa and his parents. I think his parents were from Italy, but for whatever reason, they started a business in South Africa. And then he was born. He lived there up until he was like five. And like he could speak. I think it was like African. He was fun. But it was just funny. Like the black guys always thought it was so funny because he goes, I'm the only African here. Well, I mean, listen, but but I, I appreciate, you know, the clar the clarification, because, again, just for our audiences, you know, because because there are perceptions. Right. And, uh, you know, it's one thing as a know, perception, to, but it's not a reality. Exactly. That's my and that's what we we're trying to, to establish is that there is there is diversity and it's always been there. But to your point, as as the need had called for it, there's more, you know, I guess, introduction of different ethnicities within the force and more and more uh, coming through. Uh, I mean, 9-11, obviously, tragedy in New York City, one of the biggest oh, events. Yeah. Uh, that also prompt one of the reasons I I was joining is because of my background and language speaking you know skills that was going to be you know why you know oh, one you would have gotten scooped up do, do, you, uh, do you I I, I, I it was quick I mean how many languages really, do you speak four and a half <laughs> what, what languages so French Arabic Spanish a uh, little bit of I Italian. can guarantee you within if you wanted to and you had good evaluations and you kept your nose clean. By now, you would probably be working in either major case narcotics or um, a terrorist task force or a DEA um, narcotics um, team where you'd be monitoring. You'd be working on international drug cases or, or terrorism. I guarantee uh, well, it. If, you, if well, that's what you wanted with your background, you could be doing it. Also, terrorism was actually the 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 route, and that was actually uh, some of the even with the customs and things that was that was the uh, some of the uh, I guess the the interest there. But you're right. I mean, so there is there is always that you know uh, contribution and from communities to try to be part of the system and help. And so that that changed the dynamics. Now now the biggest you know discussion usually around you know police uh, and and more recent police brutality, uh, you know and and. So I want to just maybe spend some time on this because yeah, there, because there's two things here. First, police people, police, you know, law enforcement agents, officers, they put their lives, you know, every day in danger. Uh, and so, so there is that. And, you know, again, we talked about power uh, other than the summons, you know, you, you do carry a gun, you do have some authority. Uh, sometimes, you know, it gets out of hand, but you're right. If you have to defend yourself every day there is a chance where someone's gonna pull a gun at you or something you, you don't know you might take action uh now i'm assuming that didn't happen so luckily no no stuff but a lot of people i'm very i i almost in my career i almost i mean i'm so lucky that i never had to pull the trigger but there were a handful of times that i mean i can like off the top of my head where i almost took someone's life and i'm just so glad almost like god intervened and they either, I, I, I could tell you the stories, but I mean, it was just like, I was that close to killing somebody. And like afterwards, it's almost like when you almost get into a car accident. And he's and like, like, like Oof. holy shit. I, one time, Saturday afternoon, my partner and I were in uniform, early 90s, nice building, six-story walk-up on, on Broadway in the Riverdale section of the Bronx. I don't know what the call was. It wasn't a heavy one. Saturday morning, we're banging on the door. And as we're waiting for the person to, who called us to open the door, a door across the hallway opens and like a 14-year-old kid comes running out with a gun in his hand. Ooh. And my partner and I just turned and drew on him and dropped that gun. 
And the kid was a good kid. He dropped it. And what it was is it was a 14-year-old boy playing with his eight-year-old cousin or brother. They were playing cops and robbers in the house. It, it, it was a replica. He was in the house. They were just goofing around. He didn't know we were in the hallway. You know what I mean? He was just playing around with his cousin. And it spilled out. His cousin was chasing him. He was going to run out with the hallway with this thing. You know, it's a Saturday morning. He didn't expect two NYPD cops in the hallway. And his parents, mother beat his ass. She came out and dragged him. She's like, I'm so sorry. It's like, it's all right. It's like, I told you not to leave the house with this thing. It was mine. I didn't know they were in the hallway. But it was like, it's a game of inches. Another time, there was this crackhead female, and she was chasing her boyfriend with a carving knife all around Kingsbridge and Sedgwick Road, right? Chasing him. And it wasn't like she was doing it for drama. She was trying to get him. Like, she was putting her weight into it, trying to get him, right? My sergeant and I roll up. We get out of the car. The boyfriend sees us like, oh, great. He runs behind my sergeant and starts climbing up his back. So she comes charging at my sergeant. I'm yelling, drop the gun. And I just start lower. And we had 38s at the time. And I just start lowering the, my gun. I got one because it's going to happen like that. Like she's closing in on him. And out of the corner of my eye, another police car had just pulled up. And this guy actually, I'm going to call him later today. He tackled her. You ever see, like, in football, like, the quarterbacks just to make a, a yeah, pass, yeah, he just, and he gets big. knocked out of the scene? Like, uh -huh. you don't even see the pass rusher coming, right? Like, he just goes. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. My friend was a big guy. He was, like, a 240-pound football player. Tackle, baby. Cracked her, and the gun came, a gun, the knife came right out of her hand. It's so funny, right? So we handcuff her. She's, like, 90 pounds. And with females, man, they can always get those cuffs off. She was so flexible. We put her in the back of the radio car. And it was, I think it was the summer, so we had the windows down. Handcuffed from behind, she stuck her head out the window and flipped, landed on her head, got up and started running down the block. We had to, we had a hand, we had to put her back in the police car. Oh my god. Well, it's the drugs. It's the drugs. Oh, she was so high. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you never want to take someone's life. You just don't. But I, I a lot of my friends have been in shootings. I've had I've got a bunch of friends that were either shot. And I got more friends that have killed somebody, been in gunfights. So I'm just lucky that I didn't, because there's a lot to go that goes with that. So it is real. I mean, there's there's no you 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 are you're taking your life out on, on the street, and there is a chance that you might be able to take yeah. one. And but but so so th sometimes the question is how much lethal can you possibly maybe use a taser, which is you know available, or maybe it wasn't available. It is now. Okay. Wasn't then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so so then it wasn't. I mean, so yeah, that's that's an introduction that that came in a later time. So, but even today, we have the problem of people still getting shot, and yet there's tasers and other ways you can, you know, rubber bullets, whatever these things have. You know, you can. I mean, you can use. I mean, someone with a knife. You know, uh, if they're distant, you can still kind of take them away. I got to be honest with you. I've seen a lot of gunshot wounds, and I've seen a lot of stab wounds. I'd rather get shot. <laughs> Well, stab wounds aren't nasty. I mean, obviously, the knife is, you know, it goes through more tissue, oh. more more stuff. You know, I mean, it's not a bullet is tiny and it goes through. Right. If it goes through, you know, flesh, it's it's done, you know. But but again, I mean, it's still painful and we don't want anybody to be shot. But but, you know, uh, so your opinion is, I mean, certainly low uh, engagement. I mean, a low frequency of engagement. I mean, try to avoid as much as you can. If you can't, obviously, you have to do what you have to do. Uh, now, is there a rule? Like if someone has no gun, but maybe has some other weapon, can you not use an actual? 
if someone is using deadly physical force, okay, so let's and go. that's where it gets murky, but deadly physical force. So if you're a six foot five, 240 pound guy, and you've got a 95 pound female cop by the throat, and you're choking her out, is that deadly physical force? We're deadly. You got to take care of you. <laughs> right. I get it. I get it. So, so again, it gets murky with vehicles. So the NYPD does not want you shooting at vehicles. That was the one thing I, I, I always could never wrap my head around. So the only way they want you shooting at a vehicle is if the person is using deadly physical force in addition to the motor vehicle. So literally, the guy has to be hanging out the window of the car or someone's in the car shooting at you that you can return fire. But like if a, a car, movie chase. I, I remember that, like saying, well, what if he's coming at you? He goes, get out of his way. I was like, well, that's comforting. They do not want you shooting at cars. Like that was a big no-no. If, if someone is literally ramming at you with a vehicle. Get out of the way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I mean, you know, that's that's a rough one. I mean, it's like you wouldn't think that. You would think that you should at the tires, you should at and Maybe the, it the changed, stuff. but I highly doubt it. Interesting. Interesting. Well, you know, I mean, we're we're having a, a discussion on the show here. Well, I hope, I mean, I, you know, there's always, it's hard to, 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 to see a life go no matter what. And, uh, you know, someone is not feeling right, you know, family members, somebody. I mean, even for a bad person or a perp or a criminal, you know, they still have family and, and sometimes everybody gets affected, you know, no matter what. Uh, mm -hmm. So, but, but you're right. If, if there is no fear of, of repercussions of potential, you know, deadly force use, people are probably going to just take over. I mean, let's think about it, right? If, if a thug, you know, doesn't know that there's a chance that they're going to get, you know, you know, right. shot or whatever, then they probably will just, you know, do whatever they want. And then there's going to be that. So, so I, I get the concept of, you know, why you would need, uh, you know, to use force. I, I, the thing I think is the excessive force versus not excessive force. But it is a, a split second decision, as you said. I mean, you know, you have a gun in your hand, hair trigger, you know, it could be just, you know, even sometimes a mistake and, and, and voila, it's done. Oh, yeah. Guns don't come with erasers. I mean, I, I tell the story. We pulled over. My partner and I, it was a Saturday morning. We pull over this guy for taillight or something. It was It was nonsense. And we pull the guy over, and you could tell he's all coked up. He's been clubbing the night before. Like, he's wearing a silk shirt. He's got a <laughs> pair of slacks. And he smells like Paco Rabanne. Like, he's been out. You know, he's he's still coked up. And I keep seeing him messing with his waist. So I says, you know what? Why don't you step out of the car? I'm going to show you your taillights out. I'm not going to give you a ticket, but let me just show you, right? He gets out of the car, and he starts screwing around with his waist again. And I, I he's got a gun in his waist. So when he got out of the car, I looked at my pawn on the other side of the car and I dove into his waist and I felt it. I got my hands on the top of the gun. He grabs my hands. And now me and him are in the fight of our life for this handgun, right? It was a nine millimeter. And we're bouncing off the car. My partner comes running around the car and I go, shoot him. And he goes, what? I go, gun, 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 shoot him, shoot this mother. And thank God my partner just turned around and cracked him. And the guy just kind of went, went limp and the gun popped up and I had it. But I mean, I go, why didn't you shoot him? He goes, your head was too close to his. He goes, you don't realize like I was terrified of hitting you. So I said, all right, yeah, all right. Well, it worked. So, I mean, but in that instance, like it just happened so fast. We just thought we were pulling a guy over for a taillight and it like within seconds, I was in the fight of my life with this guy. 
But, but, but Vic, that, that's that's a big clarification for people watching and listening right now. It doesn't matter what law enforcement, what state, what country, as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, I think there's mis, you know, you hear this all the time. Why did the cops shoot so-and-so, right? Uh, but but there is a protocol. I mean, you guys pull someone. I mean, there's, there's you check them in the vehicle first. I mean, you go on your computer, you see any, any you know, previous instances. Uh, and, stolen, and, does he have exactly, warrants? Right. Exactly. So so you come up with caution based on whoever is there. And even then, you know, like to your point, you can, it's a late, I mean, it's just a light, tail light, but then now this guy is carrying a piece. And so, I mean, that in itself is a problem. I mean, the piece is illegal. It's not, it's not showing your system. Therefore, that is not a proper piece, right? Well, it got worse because we locked the guy up. He gets out on bail and Oh, I got so many stories like this. He got out on bail, and a couple of months later, he got grabbed in a home invasion in the Bronx. He wound up getting like 15 years. So, I mean, that's a bad dude. Another kid, early 80s, or, oh, God, 88, 89. My partner and I stop a kid. He had a Mac 10. 16, 17-year-old kid, fully automatic, 45 caliber machine gun, right? Had a prior gun charge pending. Somehow made it out on bail and a couple of weeks later killed somebody. So you never know who you're dealing with. Like you would say, well, what's a 16 year old kid doing with something, you know, that, that uh, a weapon like that, that you would see in like Iraq, you, you know what I mean? It's like something, you know, but yeah, th there are people like that. And there is the, the hardware out there. Well, that, that's the thing. I mean, like for someone, cause there's this, this big debate about firearms and, you know, uh, amendment, Second Amendment, all the stuff. You know, I mean, the folks that actually go and and buy and purchase pistols or whatever from the store. I mean, they go through the criminal, you know, procedure. Yeah. They do the whole stuff. They get the process. You know that I, if you look me up, you know if I have a piece or not in my system. My name is going to come up. You know exactly what I have, and you know so on. As opposed to you know the average person that may carry this stuff that just buy it off the market, and 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 ultimately, if you do and buy in that way, there's there's ill intent there's got to be some reason why yeah. you might it's not you know it's not like you're going to go hunting right <laughs> right the throwaway gun it, it has no right you, you're buying it you're buying it off the black market where it's 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 either stolen or purchased through a straw purchase that's not going to come back to you so if god if if you know if, if you drop the gun and you don't leave your dna or prints on it it's not coming back to you it's not you know vic ferrari's gun or your gun what well, even the DNA? I mean, if they're not in the system, you're not going to be able to capture them. I mean, there's no match. No, but you, but now, you know, but that database is growing, right? Okay. And nowadays, the way that when you see like nowadays, like they're catching these serial killers or just happened. It just was on the news yesterday that they caught some guy. He committed a homicide in Florida in 1984. And they just arrested him in San Diego. The guy's an old man. You know what I mean? Like he was like, teenager when he did this homicide the way they're getting people nowadays even if you're not in the database say for argument's sake you commit a terrible crime but you're not in the database you've never been arrested right and your distant cousin gives a dna sample to like ancestry.com or one of these databases to see you know where i came from where my people are from do i have relatives that i don't know about right now they've got a profile so now you leave your dna at a scene right law enforcement is working with these companies right so then the company will get back to this person right that they gave the dna and says um 
Do you have any relatives or do you have any distant relatives that live in the New York City area? Yeah, you know what? My mother was my mother was married to a guy who I think she had a couple of kids with, but I never met. And they're in the New York City area. Do you know how old they are? Yeah, I, I think one guy's like in his late thirties. And then they'll they'll start narrowing it down, right? Yeah. And they'll either bring you in or they'll follow you until you chuck a cigarette or you're drinking a soda and you throw it in the garbage. They'll retrieve and it. Now we have your match. <laughs> That's how they've been doing. That's how they caught that guy um, up in California. Oh, God, I can't. The guy that caught him is this guy, Paul Holes. He's got his own TV show. Um, but uh, he was he was, he was was a serial killer for, for decades in California. And then he went dormant. I guess he got tired of killing people. But they traced these crimes to him decades later for just how I explained it. I mean, it is amazing. I mean, the, the police work and, and just the technology today and how you guys do, you know, uh, you've evolved a huge, I mean, obviously you're retired, but you still attach to it. And I guess once you're in law enforcement, you're always going to be in law enforcement. That's just, that's in your DNA. It becomes yeah, your... we're not going to watch soap operas. <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> Uh, so, so now, now let's talk about your books. I mean, you really compiled, you know, all your stories in, in few books. Uh, and so let's talk about what, what are the books and, you know, some yeah. of the stuff. Cause I, we, I mean, ultimately we want people to, uh, I mean, these are like, uh, you know, uh, good books, you know, for movie prop properly, you know, Oh, <laughs> I hope. yeah, listen, if someone <laughs> Hollywood wants to option one of my books, I'm all ears, man. No, nah, listen, I mean, you do have some real stories that, that are in oh, the yeah. books that can really be a good, uh, I guess, prompt, you know, uh, uh, script, you know, kind of concept that, you know, because it's real stuff and, and, and it's, it's really events that did occur. It could be a comedy, it could be a real, it could be just drama, but, but I, I think you have a lot to offer there in terms of your content. I mean, and, and you've been through a lot yourself. I mean, when yeah. you serve in the force for many years and to your point, doing different parts of the service, uh, dealing with different crimes. Uh, I mean, again, the the simple story you talked about, like you know, being a rookie, you know, with a dead body, and <laughs> that oh, in itself could be a horror. <laughs> that uh, okay, so I'll just so this is my first NYPD book, NYPD through the looking glass stories from inside America's largest police department. There's a story in that book about a cop. So the quickest way to get in trouble in the NYPD is lose your gun, your shield, your ID card. If you lose any one of those three items, you're going to lose thirty vacation days. They're going to put you on a year probation. So this cop that we work with, he wasn't the smartest of people, and he was going to go out drinking one night, and he didn't want to bring his gun. So he didn't want to, you know, he was afraid of it getting a burglary. So he hid his gun in the one place he didn't think anybody would look, his stove, goes out drinking, comes home four hours, nine beers later, a little liquored up, decides he's hungry. He preheats his oven to 475 to make some frozen pizzas, forgets about the gun in the oven, goes into oh, the kitchen. Shit. Starts wow. channel surfing. The first shot goes off. He's like, oh, shit. The second shot, my gun is shooting at me. He had to climb out of his house on his hands and knees, call emergency service. They had. He needed a new stove, a new gun, lost 30 vacation days, and got put on a year probation. There's another story in this book about a cop I knew who moved a dead body to, work, to get, avoid getting out of overtime. So that book is full of funny, colorful stories of behind-the-scenes look at the NYPD. My next NYPD book is NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos. Same thing. Funny stories. There's a story in there. This cop I knew, we used to call him El Diablo, even though he was Irish. The Spanish cops used to say, if you worked with him, you're either going to convert to Christianity or go to rehab. He was just that much of a partier. He got drunk at a midtown bar. He stole a horse and carriage that you see going around Central Park. Buggies, yeah. yeah. He was talking to two girls at the bar. 
the handsome cab operator with the top hat came in to use the bathroom and he said as a joke, he goes, hey, can I take Seabiscuit for a ride? The guy goes, yeah, sure. He goes, okay. He went outside, put the two females in the horse and carriage, right? And they start going. Well, the horse quickly figures out this guy doesn't know what he's doing. I'm going to the barn to get some oats and hay. So the horse realizes he can't tell me what to do. The horse starts blowing lights, right? Like oh, you can't blow lights in a horse and carriage. You could get killed. The horse and carriage takes off through Central Park to cut through the park to get back to the barn. This guy's friends, who also had a handsome cab operators, go, oh, shit, there goes Harry's stolen horse and carriage, right? They chase it into Central Park, and then it became like Yonkers Raceway. Like, one got in back, one got in front, like, whoa, to stop this thing? They were going to beat the shit out of him. The um, Central Park precinct cops came. The owner came. He wanted him arrested. He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa time out. I'll tell you what, I'll take you to an ATM right now. I'll give you 500 bucks. We make this go away because you can give me 500 bucks. And it went away. So that's a story from my book, The NYPD's Flying Circus. <laughs> and we got Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division. That's everything you wanted to know about chop shops, stolen vehicles, exporting stolen cars out of country, who steals your car, where your car goes, a car thief's mindset, how to protect your vehicle from being stolen. Then we got... NYPD law and disorder. This book has got a lot of embarrassing moments. I love that law and disorder. Time, I lock up four kids, three kids for four kilos of coke in the back of a, of a cab, right? I go to court that night. I'm on top of the world. I go across the street to use the food court bathroom. I'm on the bowl and I got my gun, my, my gun belt hung on the hook. These teenagers come running into the bathroom. They're hitting the hand dryers. They're screwing around. Then it gets quiet. I'm like, did they leave? I look up. One of the kids ran into the next stall, jumped up on the toilet seat, and was trying to pull my gun belt over the wall. I jump up. My pants go to the ground. It's a hockey fight, bro. My pants are down to my knees, and I'm punching him in the face, telling him, let go of the gun belt. His friends run into the next stall. They start pulling his legs. He drops the gun belt. I pick it up. I pull up my pants. The whole wall broke. You know, like those cheap aluminum walls, like it bent, right? I get my uniform back together. I run into the food court. There's this 300-pound porter with like, you know those janitors, they buff the floors. He had like a Sony Walkman on. I'm like, dude, dude. He takes it off. And I go, did you see a bunch of teenagers run through here? He looks up and burps and he goes, no. So like in the book, I go, what, what am I supposed to do at this point? Call the police on myself? The cops that show up, I'm going to be the laughing stock of the Bronx. Like it's going to get around. You see that guy over there? He lost his gun. Almost. So I kept that story to myself until I retired from the NYPD. So that book's got a lot of embarrassing stories. And then my last book, Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate, is about growing up in the Bronx in the 70s and 80s. Um, me being a little son of a bitch until I turned my life around. And on the cover, you got a picture of a priest chasing a kid in a Catholic high school uniform out of a confession booth. That really happened because I confessed one sin too many. He didn't have a sense of humor and chased me through the damn church. So there's a lot of me running for my life in that story and me growing up and what I had to do to become an NYPD cop. All my books are on Amazon. Just go to the Amazon book section, type in my name, Vic, Ferrari like the car. All my books are $10 paperback or $2.99 ebook download. And if you want to get a hold of me on Twitter or Instagram, it's at VicFerrari50. Ooh, I, I, those are, those are they're, they're must-reads, man. I mean, I have to say, I mean, at least at least just just for the fun of it i mean you want to read those books and and just and learning i mean there's a lot of learning there talking about like uh grand theft auto i mean uh you know it's it's happening every day i mean i had actually uh someone come in about a few months ago they went to my driveway i'm in jersey they drove they they drove at night it was three o'clock in the morning i have cameras 
you know, a white car. They stopped at my neighbors. They opened the vehicle. I have press badges. So they actually looked in the vehicle. They saw the press. Maybe that's why they didn't take anything. They just literally messed up everything and walked away. They couldn't take anything. They didn't take the vehicles. Um, but literally, it, was, it happened at 3 o'clock in the morning. We have the footage and everything. We called the cops. I mean, they were hit in different townships in Jersey. And it's happening every day. And so, and some cars have more, I guess, appeal than others. And I mean, these are real stories. So if you're watching and listening, and you mentioned home invasions, that happened a few years back. Again, in, in, in my area, they hit a few houses. It was around the, um, the Indian holiday, uh, Diwali. It's a it's Diwali's. It's a they oh, have the gold, okay. they have the the, the golds and, and all the stuff. So so these these folks came from I think from Texas and they started hitting different states and they hit even Jersey, and they got eventually caught. But I mean these are real things that are happening everywhere, and so folks need to be aware. And you know some of the stuff that you have there could be fun, but there's also some tips and and things that oh, yeah. they, can, they can really learn from. Uh, what to look for and understanding the concept and and you mentioned insurance fraud i'm in the insurance space as well uh in the health one but but you're right and we have fraud waste and abuse every day oh, yeah. and there's always cases of, of of what can go wrong you talked about you know uh chop chops you talked about the the concept of uh what do you call it i uh run my my car over and so this way you know i told my car so the insurance can take it over yeah those are those are yeah we used to do insurance fraud cases all the time where someone doesn't want their car anymore be it it's a lease right and they're over on the mileage and they've got damage to the car and they know they're going to pay three four thousand dollars when they return that car so what do they do they report it stolen so they don't have to pay the fees or someone owns a car and they can't make the payments anymore they report it stolen and you know and then uh, the insurance goes crazy so <laughs> Well, listen, Vic, I mean, it, it's been a little over an hour, but it was all all fun and, and dandy. I mean, I had a great, great time with you, man, and a lot of impressive stuff and information. I mean, uh, you know, real. Uh, it's, it's you know, for anyone that's actually listening, you know, watching, if you want to be in law enforcement or in the law enforcement, I mean, it's real. There's there's ups and downs like everything else. It's We are humans. Uh, it's not a peachy as we think. And, you know, the public perception is always like we want it, you know, black and white. It's not a black and white. There's gray in between wow. and there's a lot of shady stuff. And I'm not shady, shady. I mean, like there's a lot of different shades, sure. I would say. <laughs> you know, it just happens and there's nothing you can do. I mean, uh, there are idiots out there <laughs> that, that always can do bad. And, and so you have to deal with it. And sometimes it is human nature. You have to react. You have to do certain things. And you know, again, in your case, luckily, never had to, to you know, pull a trigger uh, but but it could happen to anyone, um, and sometimes it's live and that, and uh, the adrenaline rush can happen. So many things can happen, and you're right. I mean, there's some good, there's some bad. You know, hopefully, in, you know. But I think the overall is that there's always good, and we need this. Uh, you know, uh, to continue always there, we need to have the respect for our law enforcement, and of course, I think you know uh, the law enforcement folks they should also have respect for the communities because I mean we work with each other uh, in a way. Uh, and so that's about it. So uh, any last advice to anyone that's listening and watching right now before we end our show? Just stay out of trouble. <laughs> Your life will be that much easier. Some people are, are magnets for trouble. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, listen. You're 100% right. You know, but but I, I love it. I mean, you know, we all, it is not, it's not, it's literally, I had this discussion with my kids the other day. It's like, it's very easy to get in trouble. I mean, that's the easiest way to do it. Uh, staying away from trouble is actually much difficult and you just yeah. have to know what not to break and just keep cool. Uh, you know, again, substance can be a, a, you know, a problem. Any type of substance can affect your, you know, alter your, your mind and 
you know, you get angry and the rest is, is, is done. So, so Vic, thank you so much for, for being with us for the advice. Uh, and definitely the books. We're going to look them up. I'm going to, you know, put them on my uh, Instagram as well. So people can actually take a look at them. Yeah, please do check them out. I mean, they sound to be interesting. I mean, if you look book, you like books, you know, these could be good reads and, uh, and probably fun. <laughs> All right. So Vic, thank you so much. Have a great day. And, uh, uh, folks, thank you so much for being with us, for watching, for listening in. American H. We'll be talking soon. Bye for now.